Welcome to Everyday Nonviolence. This podcast is produced by Friends for a Nonviolent World, or FNVW. FNVW champions nonviolence as the foundation for effective programs and actions to promote the dignity of every human being. The Everyday Nonviolence podcast highlights people in our community who are using the principles and practices of nonviolence to transform themselves and the world around us. Their stories deepen our understanding of the impact of violence and the many ways nonviolence can be used for healing and social change. Restorative justice is a theory of justice that focuses on mediation and agreement rather than punishment. It's based on the concept that offenders must accept responsibility for harm and make restitution with victims. Some cultures have used these concepts in their communities for generations, and they're becoming increasingly common in the criminal justice system and other settings. I'm Jaren Peterson-Dean, and Angel Dawson is with me today to talk about how schools are using these goals and techniques. Angel is a restorative practices coordinator for an intermediate district in the Twin Cities metro area. Welcome, Angel. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me today. To get us started, um, what is the role of a restorative practices coordinator and is it fairly common in school districts in Minnesota? Imagine sitting around a fire. Years ago, Indigenous peoples sat around a fire and they communed and they had connection and they built community in that way, in a circle, in a circle, everyone is even, everyone is the same. It's completely equitable. There is no hierarchy within the circle. And so that's the basis of it. It is an opportunity to build community within our smaller groups, if you will. So in a classroom, it might be a team a classroom team, meaning the licensed teacher and a couple of education assistants, or it could be with the entire class, including the students. Um, We would all sit in a circle and in that circle, we would build community and it wouldn't be like the corny icebreakers. We actually get to know each other um, and bring the humanity back into the space. And so instead of Uh, let's say if I'm in a circle with an administrator, the administrator's title doesn't matter as much as the drive into work. Maybe that's what they talked about. And because of their drive into work, I can identify with that just as a human being. And now our titles are no longer relevant. What's relevant is that we're two people living in this life experience together. They're building community as one unit. I hope that kind of makes sense. (laughs) Thank you for explaining. And I do want to just mention that what you're saying sounds like circles and restorative practices can be used really to build community and um, create some common ground rather than what we maybe think of as like, there was a wrong, we're sitting in this circle to repair the harm. And I know we'll get to a little bit more of that, but I just, 
wanted to pull out what you're saying and make sure that our listeners understand that it's not always about repairing harm when something's been done, but also building that community so that when there is harm, it's we're able to work together to solve it. Does that seem like a fair explanation? Yes, absolutely. I personally believe that I believe in the 80-20 rule and how can I make withdrawals because of a harm if I've not made any deposits into our relationship? And so first, we have to build community. That's the 80%. If you don't have any kind of human connection with each other, what exactly are we repairing? I'm not saying it can't be done. I'm saying it's easier to do when that muscle memory is already there of building community with each other. And so are you saying that those corny icebreaker questions don't actually help? I'm not saying that they don't help. I'm saying that they are helpful if they are targeted or if they are meaningful. If there's purpose. Yeah, there's if, if, if there's purpose behind it. So let's say if you're like uh, one of my circle questions or prompts, it's always a prompt because sometimes people won't answer a question. But if you say, I'm just prompting you in a direction, um, one of my prompts is, what is something you'll die on a hill for? And mine is always, toilet seats always go down. I don't care. And so like, you know, it's still an icebreaker, right? But it's a little bit more, it's kind of funny. And you can make that really funny or you can make that like, I feel like, um, gay rights are a must, you know, like you can kind of take it wherever you want to take it, depending on how you're feeling. And in that, if there's a circle of eight people, you might get some funny, you might get some more serious, but I'm learning about people in the process and not just the usual, um, Hey, how you doing? And then walk away. You know, how people ask you, how you doing? And they don't really want to know. <laughs> so it's a little, it's digging a little bit deeper. Awesome. So how long have you been in this role and what were you doing before that? Oh man. So I have been in this particular role only, it hasn't even been a year yet. Um, building community I've done for my whole life. <laughs> I've always built community, but um, with the title of restorative practices coordinator, it's fairly new. I'd say about eight or nine months um, I've been doing this. How would you gauge if the work you're doing is successful and what does it mean to you to be successful in your position? Well, I'm a teacher, so I keep data. <laughs> That's like massively important. Over the period of time that I have been in this district facilitating circles or being a part of circles, I have gotten to meet with over 450 staff and students. How do I gauge whether or not their success? It's gradual. Do these people now see each other where they are versus the angry moments that they were having with each other prior? Do they have more grace with each other? Do they have more patience for each other? And sometimes I'll get emails from people that'll say like, I never open up at work. I never talk at work. I never share anything with anyone at work, but this felt really good. To me, that is massive success. That is saying that now we've brought the human back into this space where we're spending 70% of our lives together. We should like each other. We should at least have common ground with each other. 
So for me, that's massive success. And then if we have the students that are also like, hey, Miss Angel, are we doing circles today? That's a win. Like, because usually it starts off like, oh, here comes this lady with this gray hair and she's always talking about something. And did you bring pizza? And then <laughs> by the end of the school year, it's, hey, I missed circle today. How was it? And when are you coming back next? When are you coming back? That's how I know. Like, okay, I'm doing something right. And it, it doesn't always... It's not always perfect, but that's the beauty of circles. It just doesn't have to be perfect. What would you say are the three most important restorative principles in order to make restorative practices meaningful for participants? For me, as a circle keeper, I would say patience, not expecting it to be the way I want it to be. Getting rid of Angel's ego and saying that is not relevant. I'm not here to fix anything. I'm just here to hold space. And I'd say the third would be flexibility, being flexible um, and being able to, to read the room. You know, if we've had a moment where everyone in the circle is crying, we're not digging deeper after that. Maybe we need to laugh because there's so many ebbs and flows in, in human nature that you just have to be able to know like, okay, it's heavy. We need a break. If another school district approached you and asked why they should consider having a restorative practices coordinator or implementing restorative practices, what would you tell them? If you want your kids to have that skill of being able to actually have empathy and care about what someone else feels or care about how someone else is feeling, if you want to be able to strengthen relationships within your buildings, if you want to be able to meet the needs to repair harm, because before we get to that, you have to have all of this community building, then this is what you want for your school. This is what you want in your buildings, not just for your students, but also for your staff. And I know from years of being a teacher myself that restorative practices often gets looked at as like the hippy-dippy, touchy-feely, we're just going to talk about stuff instead of actually having consequences. And that frustrates me so deeply because it's not that, but it takes a lot of work to get that understanding. And you've talked about circles. But are there other methods that you use to build community or address specific issues in school that would still fall under that restorative practices umbrella? Yes. So we have restorative chats and restorative chats. Sometimes we have to adapt things because, like I said, I work in a setting for. So sometimes our students are so elevated. Have you ever like. I don't know, you stubbed your toe, you hit every red light going into work. Uh, the kid is crying in the back seat. you know, bird pooped on your windshield. Your ability to handle anything after that is like, if one more thing happens, I am going to lose it, right? So some of our students function there. That's where they are all the time, constant. So sitting in a circle might not work for them. They might not be able to really do that successfully. So I might instead have a conversation with them and have a chat with them and say, hey, you know what happened, right? How do you feel about that? And then just give them the time and space to be heard. 
What examples might you share to illustrate the benefits of using restorative practices in schools? So I, I had a uh, situation where there was harm that was done um, from an administrator. They said something that the staff were, they didn't agree. The staff didn't agree with it at all. And there's always these tiers of staff. So you have your support staff, uh, which is like um, maybe your psychologist or a social worker or uh, occupational therapist, because in setting four, we have all of those. Um, and then you have your education assistants or education support professionals, which would have been like a teacher's assistant. And then you have your licensed teachers in a space. None of them agreed with what the administrator was saying. They were all ticked off and they all felt like there was harm. I had to meet with each group individually. And then I brought in the administrator to meet with each group. The first round where I met with them, it was an opportunity for them to kind of trauma dump all the things that they were feeling, everything that they were mad at the district about. They were mad at cornflakes and just anything, anything they were ticked off about. This is the opportunity to do it with anonymity because the circle is anonymous. I'm not going to take this information back and go to the admin and say, yeah, the, everyone said you suck and let me tell you why, right? So we had all of those opportunities for everyone to vent and then we brought the administrator back in and then we had circles together and we cried together as a unit. And then when we left, we were all better for it. There were more hellos in the hallways. There was more respect for the administrator. There was more understanding of why she did what she did and that she's just doing her job just like you're doing your job. And just because there's misunderstanding doesn't mean that I hate you or you hate me. It just means that we're missing each other. And so I think I'm hoping I answered your question, but that's a example of it working. I definitely think that's a great example. What are some of the challenges or roadblocks you've run into when trying to implement restorative practices in schools? Ah, uh, disrespect to the practice. Disrespect to the indigenous peoples and where it came from. I've had people say, well, can't we just do this and call it something else? Or, you know, well, why do we have to do this? Or, or again, because people think it's that foo-foo, touchy-feely, hippie, whatever, um, they feel like they can treat it any type of way. And I think that's been kind of the hardest thing, the fidelity of it and giving honor where honor is due. This is something that's been done for millennia before I was a twinkle in my mother's eye and there will be circle keepers for thousands of years to come. So I have to give honor and respect to what has been laid, the foundation of circles that's been laid and that allows me the opportunity to function in this. So that's probably the hardest part. And then the lack of fidelity, like when people are using uh, circles in a punitive way, it, it totally defeats the purpose of circles. So let's say if a student is, gets in trouble, and I say that in air quotes, trouble. Um, and the teacher says, well, you can't come back until you do a circle. That's not how it works. Circles are completely volunteer. If they don't want to be in a circle, they don't have to be in a circle. You've got to figure out something else for those consequences that um, we're so adamant about, but consequences have not gotten us any the results that we're trying to get. Actually, our prison systems are worse. Our schools are worse. 
So I think that's probably the the biggest roadblock and then really getting people to understand that anybody can do it. Anybody can be in circle. On that note, are there, is there a certain age range that you feel is most effective or appropriate for these techniques? I think the circles can be from any kid that's cognitively aware to an elderly. So I'd say you can start circles with your kids at two. Once they can talk, and take a circle piece and pass it because there are rules or expectations or guidelines to the circle. If they can hold a circle piece and pass it to the next person and wait their turn, that's a good way for them to learn how to do that. So you can start it when they're very, very young. Just to clarify something that you said, can or should restorative practices be used in schools or elsewhere as an alternative to discipline? Yes. Yes. Um, I believe that if you are applying the principles of circles and you're going based on the seven, the seven uh, grandfathered and guidelines of what circles are, when it's time when harm happens, because harm does happen, you're more prepared for that harm. And everyone has built that muscle memory, like I said, where they're like, okay, now we have to repair this. And then depending on the situation, there might be a re-entry, what's called a re-entry circle, which is where we welcome that offender back in. We say, hey, we love you. And let me tell you why. Let me tell you how important you are to this community and how much we need you. Um, imagine instead of expelling or suspending kids, we said, okay, we're not going to do that. Instead, we're all going to come together as a community and work together so that we can help this person be more successful. We all have kind of a stake in the game with each other. If Jaron does something, I'm directly affected. I'm going to communicate to Jaron that, hey, this is how I was affected. Now you understand how I was affected. Now you have a stake in it. We have equity with each other to say, well, how can I fix this? Because I didn't really mean to hurt you. Thank you. I should tell you that I am quite familiar with restorative justice in the criminal justice system as well. About nine years ago, my boyfriend was shot and killed in Minneapolis, and I participated in a healing circle with four men who had committed murder in one of our Minnesota state prisons. So we sat together for a weekend and really took time to build up that community and talk about values and then share our stories, ours as victims and theirs as people who committed crimes, and really um create an understanding and a love for each other. And I found that to be definitely one of the most impactful experiences of my life, but also provided me healing that I, I wasn't getting from a traditional justice system. So we've talked about how restorative practices may look in schools. I want to talk a little bit more about how it's used in the criminal justice system, starting with the difference between the term restorative practices and restorative justice. Can you explain why we're calling it different things? I can explain from my perspective, but this doesn't mean that it is absolute, right? I don't have all the answers. My 
view of restorative justice is it is more a perpetrator and or an offender and offendee type of thing. Restorative practices, it's a practice. It's like, you know, yoga practice. You're not perfect at it. We just keep practicing. And in those practices, it's almost like an umbrella for everything, which includes the restorative justice, but also includes healing circles. It includes grief circles. It includes community building. It Like it's all inclusive. It just kind of covers the gamut and it can be anything, not just harm. And I think that oftentimes when you say restorative practices or even restorative justice, people isolate it to offender and who's been offended and not the community part or the other parts of it that are so necessary for us to function together. How do restorative practices overlap or fit into the racial justice movement? Oh man, restorative practices it's equity 101. Like they are best friends. Equity, restorative practices, social emotional learning, they are like peanut butter and jelly, as far as I'm concerned. Because when we're in circle, I am always a Black woman, right? But when we're in circle together, that is not, unless the circle is about that in particular, like maybe something has happened or maybe. I'm having what's called an affinity circle, which is a circle with just Black people, or you have a circle with just white people or just Indigenous, you know, like you can have circles like that. When we're in circle together, we are all on the same page. We are all offering our character on the line. One of the expectations or um, guidelines of circle is speak your truth and listen with your heart. So I'm not listening to respond to you, but I'm listening to hear you. And if I'm listening to hear you, the the color or, or, or being equitable is a natural part of the process. That's a really beautiful thought. I just want to sit with that for a minute that I'm like having someone listen just to hear you sounds very powerful. It is. It is. It's a beautiful thing. And I have to say that I feel uh, beyond grateful to get to do that. That definitely sounds like a job perk. It is. It's a huge perk. It's emotional too, though. (laughs) Lots of emotional, lots of emotion, lots of when I'm in circle with someone, I'm laying myself on the line. I'm sharing myself with people. And as a circle keeper, the more I share and the more I give, the more comfortable everyone else feels giving and sharing. And then we leave with that bond that you talked about that you had in your healing circles. We leave with that love and bond and respect and appreciation for each other as human beings. Thinking back to the racial justice movement, specifically if we're thinking about the last few years in here in, in the Twin Cities, um, sort of been a hub for a lot of that. Do you see restorative practices in action or being used when you are taking a broad look at the racial justice movement as a whole? It is, but we're disconnected. 
if that makes sense. When I look around, or if you were to just Google restorative practices as restorative practices in Minnesota, you will see so many things that are happening from that lens, from that perspective. But we are all doing it kind of in these separate pockets. And so I'm working with people from the MDE to try to like bring us together. And the MDE, which is Minnesota Department of Education, they have circle keepers monthly and quarterly meetings where I meet with people all over the state, even in rural areas, we meet virtually and connect with each other and talk about what the impact is for the education system. As far as everything else is concerned, because there's so much, especially when it comes to equity and racial harm, we just have a lot of work to do. But people are doing it. People are doing the work. And I think that that's the part that becomes frustrating for those of us that are in it is that people will say, well, no one's doing anything. And I'm like, well, I'm someone (laughs) and I'm doing something, right? I'm doing something. And there might be somebody in St. Paul and there might be somebody in Anoka and maybe somebody in Circle Pines. And we're all working towards the same goal. We just haven't, we are, our energies haven't rubbed up against each other just yet. But I think that if we just keep chugging, going away at it, it's just going to get better. Friends for a Nonviolent World promotes nonviolent action to advance positive social change. Do you see your work overlapping with this? Well, one, nonviolence <laughs> is a big one um, and trying to find ways that we can connect with each other socially and interact with one another as human beings. I mean, it sounds the same as, oh, I'm seeing the human in you and you're seeing the human in me. And now we're able to share space instead of being angry and cantankerous with each other. We can instead try to figure out a way to be better. So yeah, absolutely. I think also just building that relationship to understand that my actions do impact you and other community members. And so what I think I'm doing or what I'm doing that I think isn't going to harm or hurt anyone, it's not always the case. And so being able to share and listen and work through that, I see it as a way of um, promoting nonviolence and honestly preventing a lot of violence down the road because we have that connection to each other. Yes, I absolutely agree. And yes, all not just oftentimes, but our actions always affect someone else, positive or negative. They always affect someone. If it's our children, if it's our coworkers, if it's our teachers, our parents. And that's not saying that to be like, oh, we have to like be so conscious of every single thing, but just understanding that there are, I always say there's a ripple effect, you know, water when it's flat, if you drop one drop in it, there's ripples that happen, right? Those waves, they can be positive or negative. Um, And I'm always hoping to make those positive so that when they stretch all the way out and turn into waves from ripples to waves, right? When those tsunamis hit, they're positive tsunamis of love and good energy. If our listeners want to learn more about restorative justice and restorative practices, specifically how it applies to schools, where should they look? I would say um, Minnesota Department of Education. 
that's that's a good place to start. Uh, the trainings are phenomenal. Um, I get the privilege of being one of the trainers for the Minnesota Department of Education. And so I do facilitate trainings during the summer and I'm hoping during the winter this year too, uh, virtually. But that's a good place to start to just kind of get the ball rolling and a plug for the Minnesota Department of Education. Education support professionals can get training for free. So that's a, a win. And what about people who might not be educators, but they're just curious about the work being done with restorative practices? I'd say still reach out to the Minnesota Department of Education only because they offer training so consistently. And the trainings are not just necessarily for the classroom. I will be facilitating a training actually this week, and it is for restorative chats. Now, is education a part of it? Yes, absolutely. But if you have a child, a niece, a nephew, any family member at all, it would not be a bad thing to go to a beginner's training. And so those trainings are open to people that are not necessarily educated. Yes. Great. I also know that from my own history, there's some wonderful organizations in the Twin Cities that are actually implementing restorative justice and restorative practices. And um, there's some exceptional volunteer roles out there for people who may be interested. I used to serve as a community member and would go and sit in circles with people I didn't know, but share how I was impacted as someone who lives in the community where the harm was being caused. And I found that a, to be a really powerful experience, not only for the other people involved, the, the victims and the people who committed the harm, but also for myself, selfishly, I felt like I grew a lot as a person. So there are those opportunities out there too for people who might be interested. Yes, for sure. There's so much, I, it's hard for me to like pinpoint all of it, but there are a lot of opportunities. If you just Google restorative practices in the Twin Cities, there's even some on, what is it, next door? There's a whole chat area for people that are doing community circles. That's amazing and much needed. Well, Angel Dawson, thank you so much for your time and the important work you're doing for kids in our communities. and. On a personal note, I just so appreciate what you're doing to promote restorative practices and the healing that comes along with it. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I am just grateful. For listening to Everyday Nonviolence. To learn more about Friends for a Nonviolent World, visit our website at fnvw.org or call 651-917-0383. We hope you will subscribe so that you don't miss future episodes and insightful conversations. Please note that the views expressed in this podcast are those of the host and guest and are not intended to reflect the official positions of FNVW, its staff, or board of directors.